0: Praise be to God that He has, in His kindness, brought us together again as His people to worship Him on His day. And we continue in the book of Luke, uh, again, before the cross, here in this section. Let's stand and hear the scriptures. I'll read from verse 24 through to verse 49. You'll see verse 34 there. We'll focus upon that verse in today's message. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Father, forgive them words given to us by Luke, these first words spoken by Christ. Commenting on today's text, Calvin wrote, By this expression, Christ gave evidence that he was that mild and gentle lamb which was to be led out to be sacrificed as Isaiah the prophet had foretold in Isaiah 53 verse 7. For not only does he abstain from revenge, but pleads with God the Father for the salvation of those by whom He is most cruelly tormented. It would have been a great matter not to think of rendering evil for evil as we see in 1 Peter 3. As Peter exhorts us to patience by Christ's example, says that He did not render curses for curses and did not revenge the injuries done to Him, but was fully satisfied with having God for His avenger. But... This is a far higher and more excellent virtue to pray that God would forgive his enemies. So today we'll look at this text and the title of the message is Father Forgive Them. We'll look at the setting, again remembering that Jesus spoke these words during his crucifixion. We'll see that Jesus prays to his Father in heaven and meditate upon that a bit. And that he asks his father to forgive them, these his tormentors. And he tenderly acknowledges their ignorance of their evil as he prays to God on their behalf. And then as usual, some questions for us. Will we be like Jesus? Will we know and love and obey God like he did on the cross? So what is the setting? Verse 33 tells us there. They crucified him. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Looking at another Bible dictionary about crucifixion, we read once the victim had arrived at the place of execution, executioners fixed him or her in the crossbeam to a tree or a wooden post. A third century author describes how crucifixion must have looked. Punished on their tortured bodies, they see the stake as their fate. In the bitterest of torment, they have been fastened with nails to become evil banquets for birds and terrible scraps for dogs. This brief description indicates that crucified persons were in a state of torture, that they were attached to their crossbeam and perhaps the wooden post or tree by nails, and that their corpse often was left to the scavenger animals. Seneca describes a similar image. Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his life drop by drop, rather than expiring once for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumors on chest and shoulders, and draw the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony? This text indicates that death by crucifixion took a long time and these ugly tumors were probably the result of the pre-crucifixion tortures. So in the midst of this kind of physical torment, this is what was underway, and also moving toward the moment when he would be left alone upon the the cross and he would ask the Lord why he had forsaken him, ask his father that. Jesus in this moment does not turn his focus to himself. He doesn't focus upon his own pain and his own suffering. He doesn't focus on how unjust this is. He doesn't lay out a litany of the things done wrong by all of these people. He doesn't lay out all the defenses for his innocence. What he does is he focuses upon his Father in heaven and he delights in his Father's mercy. We see this example given to us by our Lord. So he prays to his Father. He says, Father. In this relation of Son to Father, we see two things. Both the eternal divine love of the second person of the Trinity toward the Father. We see the eternal divine love between the Father and the Son. But we also see a relation into which we can enter the perfect human submission of Jesus, the only unfallen one. Andrew Murray, I sent out a link to you all today. I hope you will take the time, if you haven't already, to read this excellent work on humility. Uh, in his opening section he writes these words there are three great motives that urge us to humility it becomes me as a creature as a sinner and as a saint the first we see in the heavenly hosts in unfallen man in Jesus as the son of man so I believe as Murray is writing this he's talking about Christ in his unfallen state and we see that demonstrated to us Christ Jesus, the perfect man, the perfect response to this mistreatment. The second motive is, as a sinner, going on with Murray, appeals to us in our fallen state and points out the only way through which we can return to our right place as creatures. So it is humility that comes to us as sinners that makes the way for us to be forgiven. And in the third, as saints, we have the mystery of grace, which teaches us that as we lose ourselves in the overwhelming greatness of redeeming love, humility becomes to us the consummation of everlasting blessedness and adoration. So there's only some perfect creatures, the heavenly hosts and Jesus himself and for a time, Adam and Eve. And then there's all the... Other people who are sinners. And then there's the elect brought into God's grace by his work. Bringing us as sinners into this redeemed state. Where we can learn to live as perfect creatures again. Going on with Murray. In our ordinary religious teaching. The second aspect has been too exclusively put in the foreground. So that some have even gone to the extreme of saying that we must keep sinning if we are indeed to keep humble. Others, again, have thought that the strength of self-condemnation is the secret of humility. And the Christian life has suffered loss where believers have not been distinctly guided to see that even in our relation as creatures, so this is us as redeemed saints, creatures made able to walk in the humanity that Jesus has established for us. Going on with Murray, nothing is more natural and beautiful and blessed than to be nothing. That God may be all. Or where it has not been made clear that it is not sin that humbles most, but grace. And that it is the soul led through its sinfulness to be occupied with God in His wonderful glory as God, as Creator, as Redeemer, that will then truly take the lowest place before Him. So here in the midst of His unmatched suffering, Christ our Lord, He remains fully human, showing us He remains unfalling, unfallen, the only perfect creature in His unbroken fellowship with His Heavenly Father. And in His continued occupation, with His Father's wonderful glory, even in the midst of that suffering, and in His making of Himself nothing, taking the lowest place because He's the perfect man, looking to His Father, submitting to His Father. As we read before, John five nineteen. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He sees the Father do For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. And this is not primarily a description of the divine Son of God. This is primarily a description of the perfect man. That all of us are called to walk in this submission to our Father like this. So what does Jesus pray? A simple prayer. He says, forgive them. Jesus asks His Father to forgive His tormentors. Now, who is, for whom is Jesus praying? There's some dispute about this, but ultimately it should be taken as a prayer on behalf of all those who are present, participating in His torment. Jewish, and Gentile, leaders and crowds, soldiers and scorning bystanders. Calvin says, Of this moderation, Luke now presents an instance in our leader and master. For though he might have denounced perdition against his persecutors, he not only abstained from cursing, but even prayed for their welfare. This word forgive, I'm sure you've studied it before and you understand its meaning. It is to let go, it is to give up a debt that is owed, it is to remit. That which is owed. It is the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 18 at verse 27, in that great parable that Jesus Christ our Lord uses to teach us how we should think about forgiveness. I think we're all like Peter, aren't we? Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, an unpayable debt, uh, an unpayable debt beyond what any individual could ever pay back. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold, With his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion. Released him and forgave him the debt. So the master took the loss of that unpayable debt. Matthew Henry says, The petition, Father forgive them. One would think that he should have prayed, Father, consume them. The Lord, look upon it and requite it. The sin they were now guilty of might justly have been made unpardonable. And justly might they have been accepted by name out of the act of indemnity. No, these are particularly prayed for. Now he made intercession for transgressors as was foretold in Isaiah fifty-three twelve. And it is to be added to his prayer in John 17 where he prayed for his people. To complete the specimen he gave of his intercession within the veil. That for saints and this for sinners. So we see here that Jesus our Lord is asking his Father in heaven to release his tormentors. Not later, in the moment, from their great sin debt that they owed. Their sinful actions bring God's righteous judgment and punishment upon their lives. And Jesus has every right to lay out their sins and to lay out his righteousness. He has every right to come down from the cross and have a trial on the spot and to deliver himself and to bring them into punishment. But instead, Jesus shows us the victory of the cross. He asks His Father in Heaven to forgive their guilt. He doesn't say not guilty. He asks His Father in Heaven to forgive their guilt and bring them out from under their punishment. Bach says, Jesus thus intercedes for His enemies, portraying the very standard that He had set for His disciples. In Luke 6 and in 1 Peter we see it as well. He does not curse His opponents. Thinking of others, Jesus still desires that they change their thinking, as some will do in the book of Acts, and that God not hold their act against them. Jesus' love is evident even from the cross in the midst of his suffering. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus had taught his disciples these things. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. These are not academic words that are meant to be written on scrolls and read aloud for happy feelings. These are marching orders for Christians because as we live as Christians, we will also have a cross. As we live as Christians, we will also suffer for doing good. Matthew five forty four and 45. I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus demonstrates on the cross the best example that we could ever find of loving your enemies. Praying for your enemies. Praying the greatest possible blessing of all. That they would find themselves under God's forgiveness. Jesus tenderly acknowledges their ignorance of their evil. There's a number of ways to think about what Jesus says, but I do think that's the best overall summary. For they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. As the perfect man, in his humility before his Father, in total reliance upon his Father, making himself of no account he is able to pray for his enemies in sincerity and truth, with real compassion and tenderness for their souls, seeking their best good for what is better than the forgiveness of God. And then, even looking upon their evil behavior with a kindly eye, highlighting their spiritual blindness, instead, of putting his finger on their very real culpability, seeking to believe the best even about his enemies in the midst of his mystery. Matthew Henry says, The plea, for they know not what they do. For if they had known, they would not have crucified him. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Going back to Matthew Henry. There was a veil upon Christ's glory and upon their understanding, and how could they see through those two veils? They wished His blood on them and their children, but had they known what they did, they would have unwished it again. So note first, the crucifiers of Christ know not what they do. That they speak ill of religion. They, they that speak ill of religion, speak ill of, what, of that which they know not. And it is because they will not know it. Secondly, there's a kind of ignorance that does in part excuse sin. Ignorance through want of the means of knowledge or of a capacity to receive instruction through the infelicities of education or inadvertency. The crucifiers of Christ were kept in ignorance by their rulers and had prejudices against him instilled into them so that in what they did against Christ and his doctrine, they thought they did God's service, as we see in John 16, such as to be pitied and prayed for. This prayer of Christ was answered not long after, that should encourage us, This prayer of Christ was answered not long after when many of those that had a hand in his death were converted by Peter's preaching. And this is written also for us as an example to us. And here's Matthew Henry's very helpful points of application for us. First, we must in prayer call God Father and come to him with reverence and confidence as children to a father. Secondly, The great thing we must beg of God, both for ourselves and others, is the forgiveness of sins. Thirdly, we must pray for our enemies and those that hate and persecute us must extenuate their offenses and not aggravate them as we must our own. They know not what they do. Peradventure, it was an oversight. And we must be earnest with God in prayer for the forgiveness of their sins. The forgiveness of their sins against us. This is Christ's example to His own rule. Where He said in Matthew 5, Love your enemies. And it very much strengthens the rule for if Christ loved and prayed for such enemies, if Christ loved and prayed for such enemies as those, What enemies can we have that we are not obliged to love and to pray for? So, some questions to know and to love and to obey God. You know, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus tells us to take up our cross daily and to follow him. You've probably meditated upon that idea many times. And there's a lot to that. And in today's text, we see another aspect of taking up our cross. He, he says in Luke 9, take up his cross daily and follow me. So there's a cross that is yours. And when we look at the cross, we see that part of it is suffering unjustly. Part of taking up our cross is suffering unjustly. Suffering for doing good. And then, part of continuing to take up that cross is responding the way that Christ would have us to respond. Responding the way that Jesus responded. So, in what ways are you currently suffering persecution and mistreatment from others simply because you are living living as a follower of Christ? We're not talking about being mistreated because of our own sinfulness, or because of our own misdeeds. We're talking about walking in uprightness. And being mistreated for it. And how do you respond toward those who are persecuting and mistreating you. Because you are living as a follower of Christ. How do you respond to this? I remember the statement from a pastor that helped me a lot. He said we're never more dangerous than, we know, than when we know we are right. That is when we are most likely to fail. We're most likely to hear the words of the mockers and jump down off the cross and have a trial right there on the spot, laying out our righteousness and listing out the unrighteousness of others. But this is not how Jesus Christ would have us respond. Is your first response to simply remain fixed on God, to utter, Father in heaven, Where does your focus go? Where does your attention go? Or perhaps you'll even discover that your attention was not upon your Father in heaven. We are to fix our souls, are we not? Day in and day out in times of plenty, in times of want, in times of well-being, in times of suffering. As restored creatures, we have available to us the potential to walk in that way to constantly have our hearts and our being fixed upon God and His wonders and His glory. So is that your first response when you are mistreated? Father in heaven, fixing your soul upon God as your creator and your redeemer and just coming to Him as His beloved child. And obviously we come so differently than Jesus. Jesus never had to consider the possibility that he was wrong about his own perfection as a creature. But it is possible for us to suffer for doing good. We must do so with this heart fixed on God and with the certainty of his presence and his righteousness and his goodness to us, and his compassion to us, and his greatness. So do you respond like Christ on the cross with a heart of trust towards your Father in heaven? And then from that, compassion and tenderness and kindness towards your enemies? Is that how you respond? Do you think kindly upon the sad state of your enemies as you pray for them, seeking to think of them as you would have them think of you? Thinking to think about seeking to think about your mistreatment that that you're experiencing, that you perceive it a certain way, and think it through the way they would, you would have them think about you in the exact same situation. Believing the best. Calvin says, But it ought to be observed that when the whole world rises against us and all unite in striving to crush us, the best remedy for overcoming temptation is... To recall to our remembrance the blindness of those who fight against God in our persons. So, you know, if you're a Christian, this phrase, God in our persons, that's true of you. If you are a Christian, there's a part of you that is a restored creature. Brought back to humanity and able to walk and God in you. That's what gets attacked. ...call to our remembrance the blindness of those who fight against God in our persons. For the result will be that the conspiracy of many persons against us... ...when solitary and deserted... ...will not distress us beyond measure... ...as on the other hand, daily experience shows how powerfully it acts in shaking weak persons... ...when they see themselves attacked by a great multitude. And therefore, if we learn to raise our minds to God... ...it will be easy for us to look down as it were from above... And despise the ignorance of unbelievers. For whatever may be their strength and their resources, still, they know not what they do. They know not what they do. So, <clears throat> how important is forgiveness to God? Already we've seen these are the first words Christ speaks upon the cross. But there's more. Another way to look at it is how important is, is restored relationship to God. Or on the, other, on the flip side, how troubling should broken relationships be? So how important is this to God? And how important is this to you? Matthew 5 says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way, First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do you prioritize seeking peace with the brethren? And note this text is in reference to relationship Christian to Christian. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you will hear this in such a way as that your life will be forever impacted by these words. Do you prioritize seeking peace with the brethren so much that brokenness is a stormy trouble in your soul as Sunday approaches. And that if there is brokenness between you and the brethren, you and another Christian, that you would see the week after week signpost that God puts up before your face and says, make it right before Sunday. Make it right before before you come to worship me. Do you see that? Will you make that a part of your commitment to never leave a relationship broken and not do all you can do to be restored, to humble yourself in whatever way you have to humble yourself to be restored? Leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is not just public worship, though. Does brokenness in relationship with other Christians constantly trouble you and move you to pray and to act towards reconciliation? In your private prayers, in your family prayers, in your worship of God, what place does this take? Restoration through forgiveness is very important to god and it should mark us as christians mark eleven broadens this it's not just christians did you know that have you considered that have you ever thought to yourself that that's primarily just for christians that that there is a higher priority there but you know it's not just christians whenever you stand praying if you have anything against anyone anything against anyone that's what jesus says Forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Now hear these powerful words. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Do you rightly prioritize even, even broken relationships with anyone inside the church or outside the church? Christian or not, anything against anyone. So if you have something against, and the King James says ought, if you have anything against anyone, you are to forgive that person. And do you see that by refusing to forgive, you can prove yourself to be outside the faith? If you refuse to forgive, you can place yourself outside of God's forgiveness. And it's very likely a telling fruit of unbelief if you refuse to forgive. And this should be terrifying to us. It's a way for you to test your soul. Now, this is different than struggling with forgiveness. In our flesh, we will always be tempted towards bitterness and unforgiveness. That's not what's in view here. What's in view here is a refusal to forgive. I will, not, I will never forgive that person. That's what's in view. That's what is so dangerous. Now, you may be thinking, I thought forgiveness was a transaction. You know, how can I forgive someone in an unqualified way like this if they haven't asked for forgiveness? Well, I hope that you can see that this context is in your relationship with God, if you will, the vertical component of forgiveness. So that in your heart before God, you've already forgiven that person. The, the debt they owe you, at the moment they ask you, you say it's already forgiven. Because you've maintained that state before God at all times. That compassion and that tenderness. Now you know you, you may not ever have an opportunity to actually forgive that person on the horizontal level. Because they may never come and ask for forgiveness. Which means the debt is still theirs. As long as they don't ask for the debt to be forgiven, the debt is still theirs. So this is about your relationship with God. What heart do you have before your Lord towards those people who have harmed you? Towards those people that have mistreated you? And do you forgive them? I think it's important to read the remainder of Matthew 18. Uh, It's It's part of this whole thinking here emphasizing to us just how important this is to God and that when we are forgiven people what we will be like when we are appreciative of what God when we are grateful of what God has done for us what we will be like towards others when they harm us. And how terrible it is and how offensive it is to God for us to be unforgiving. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Aren't we all like Peter? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. Unpayable. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. Look what this man was delivered from. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. The master didn't make him pay it back. He had mercy on him. But... That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a smaller debt, a payable debt. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. It's the same thing he had said to the master, right? And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So my heavenly Father also will do to each do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. And so by the grace of God, we can be like Christ was on the cross. While on the cross, he looked to his father in heaven and he asked his father in heaven to forgive those who were currently tormenting him while he was experiencing both the physical and the emotional suffering that they were heaping upon him. Now, this is really good news. Do you see this forgiveness of your enemies? It is the victory of the cross. Do you know that the Bible tells you that we were his enemies? Right, Romans 5.10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his, the death of His Son. While we were His enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son upon the cross. And He sends us out as He was sent, taking up our cross to make friends of enemies through His cross. And so don't expect that the process that we would go through of making friends into enemies would be much different forgiveness and really it's Romans 5:21 before our eyes do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth brothers and sisters When by grace we live this way, we live the life of forgiveness because of our great love towards God and gratitude towards Him that overflows towards others. When we live this way, God uses this to make enemies into friends. And He grows us up in Him and gives us greater joy in this life as we go through this. We should expect this. And in fact, we should in some strange way that's hard to say, delight In these types of troubles that we go through. That we would be like the disciples counted worthy to suffer shame. To suffer in any way for his name. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father. We acknowledge to you Lord that the old man still dwells within us. And that in our sin we could not in any wise ever act in this way. But we acknowledge, Lord, that in our old man, we would fight back. We would hate back. Lord, instead, we look to you and we praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, as our example. We hear your words to us to love our enemies. And we recall your word to us, seeing the priority that you place upon peace, upon restored relationships, upon forgiveness. And we ask, Lord God, that you would bless us to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. That if we are suffering for good, that we like him, even in the midst of suffering, would look to you and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. and That our hearts would be filled with compassion and tenderness towards all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and indeed towards all of our neighbors throughout the entire globe. And we lift all of this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.